you know, it's great having a, a, a phone right on you because you can always look to it to help you track what you're going to do that day. For example, um, who, who looked at the weather like 10 times a day on your phone? Okay. Yeah, just like, you know, they, even think of, they have a thing called AccuWeather where they'll tell you 40 minutes from now what's going to happen. They'll tell you when the rain is coming, when it's stopping, and so on and so forth. We need this information, don't we? Because we have to forecast our schedule. Uh, if anybody's in business, it's not enough to know what is selling right now. You have to plan for what is going to sell and what you're going to need uh, a month from now, five years from now. Strategic planning means you are trying to forecast where you need to be, what you need to have 10 years in advance. Okay? This is not just for business. This is not just for daily. This is kind of the way we live. I, I feel really frustrated at times because I spend so much of my days these days thinking about what I have to do tomorrow, what, I, what I'm going to need later on, what my kids are going to be. I, I constantly are living, the, living in the future. And, and I've even kind of shared this with our pastors and others, like, uh, God is trying to teach me how to live in the present because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a very good planner, but I, I feel the, 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 the kind of responsibility and the urge to know what's going to come so that it's all going to be there. In fact, uh, if you're living in this world, uh, it's, it's all the more kind of, you're a little more anxious about trying to understand what you're going to need next year because things can get uprooted pretty quickly. And who would have thought one year ago that we as a country would be in the situation where we are now with all the changes that are coming? And so for us uh, trying to get a sense of what is coming and trying to forecast that is really significant because we're trying to gauge what do I need, what will I need, what will the ones that I love need? And um, we find that uh, even during this time of Advent, that's, that's really on our hearts and our minds very often. Today, we're actually going to look at a story where Abraham is brought into, he is read into this reality that God, in fact, knows what we're feeling, knows what we are longing for, what we want to be able to forecast. But in fact, instead of us having to deal with all that our own, he is a God who has already seen ahead He's seen what our needs are going to be. And in fact, because he's seen it, because he's not only forecasted, because he's planned it way in advance, he provides our deepest needs even before we knew. We're going to see that through the story of Abraham. Now, we are in the midst of a series called The Jesse Tree where we are looking backwards into the past, into our past, the stories in the Old Testament, which are our family stories that reveal who God is, that he's been planning to redeem us. He's been planning to meet us and fill us and restore us from a long time past. That the coming of Christ wasn't just a little blip, wasn't just a haphazard, oh, they're in trouble, I'll send my son. But in fact, it was a part of his grand plan that he's not only done with the coming of Christ, but he's actually coming again. And as we look at who it is who's done this kind of planning, who it is who's done this kind of providing and this kind of coming, it helps us to really connect deeply with him during this Advent season. And so we're going to jump into the story of, of Abraham. And I just want us to kind of uh, uh, to realize that this has everything to do with Christmas in many ways. It has everything to do with Christ. Well, let's look at the story. And, and um, if, if anybody 
have been following along in our devotion cycles, uh, Abraham's story has been touched on uh, during this week. And uh, usually I'm following the story where today I was supposed to be in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we were supposed to be talking about the Ten Commandments. But I actually was very pulled to this passage. I love this passage. It is um, deeper than any scholar, any pastor can, can actually plumb. It's, it's actually really, really amazing. Uh, and I preached this, on this passage maybe about two years ago, um, and I'm, I'm actually, as I was meditating through it, um, there was a, a, a little, at least for me, kind of, there was a couple points where God was really speaking to me. I wanted to share that. So I'm, I'm pulling this passage out of the normal schedule of our devotions for that reason. But I think it also, it means a lot to our community. I'm hoping to believe it, it means a lot to our community as well. And in Abraham's story, we encounter him uh, kind of at the age of 75. That's when your life is done. You're not really thinking about your future for your own life at 75 because, I mean, he's lived a long life. Uh, but he's actually constantly thinking about his future at, this, at the time when, he, when we encounter him in the, in the Bible because he doesn't have an heir and he's wanting a son. And he's wondering what's going to happen to not only him but his son in, in the future. And God promises him, this is what your future is going to be. You're going to have not just one son. You're going to have numerous sons, as many as the stars in the sky. Later on, he's going to tell them, as many as the sands are on the beach and the seashore. That's, that's a lot of sons. Uh, a grand future is being told him. And he's told, go to where I send you. Walk a life of faith. Learn about who I am. And so that's what he does. And his story is a lot of ups and downs, a lot of places where he really trusts God, a lot of places where he doesn't. And he kind of uh, stumbles here and there. But God's grace is just so real in his life. And to the point where after 25 years, God actually does the miraculous. Through a 90-year-old woman, through a 100-year-old man, they actually give birth to Isaac. And Isaac is this amazing, vivid, tangible expression that God keeps his promises. Now, imagine this. As a 100-year-old man, not only to see his wife give birth, but that this, uh, this child is growing up uh, right in front of you. And every time you see him, he is like this living proof that God is real. God is actually going to fulfill the promises for his future. This boy represents everything. Okay? His heir, his hopes, his joy. He's called son of laughter. He brings his parents so much joy. It's so infectious. Everybody who hears the story starts to, to marvel and to laugh. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is during this season when God encounters Abraham again. Um, but he's not just a young little boy. And it's very possibly, because we see later on in this passage, by the way, just going to give you a little background. Isaac is not a little boy. He can carry the wood for the offering on his back. Okay, a uh, uh, 100-year-old man can't carry much, trust me. <laughs> so Isaac has to carry, and that's a lot of wood. You don't do a burnt offering with matchsticks. You have to burn the whole animal through. You need a lot of wood. All that's on Isaac's back, according to the story. So some people, scholars say he's 14. Some people say he's 20. Some people say he's up to 37, 33. So just to give you an idea that Isaac, even though he's called a lad, uh, compared to Abraham, obviously, who's 100 years, 100, 130, 120 years old, um, something's happening here. After that period of time where where Abraham was be able to really love on his son, teach his son, enjoy his son. God encounters him in the morning, sometime later, and, he, and it says God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, 
He called him by name, Abraham. Here I am, Abraham replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son. Okay, God, uh, Abraham had more other sons, by the way, Ishmael and other sons. But that title is your special son, your son of inheritance, the son whom you love. Isaac, who brings you so much joy. Take him, go to the region of Moriah, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. I've got to unpack this a bit because most people, when they read this, they're like, oh my gosh, did I just hear what God just asked Abraham to do? That's, if God asked Abraham to do this, he must be an absolute monster. And for many people, this is the very reason why they'd be able to kind of say, Psh, I won't have anything to do with a God who dares ask this, this kind of act of egregious violence and injustice. Well, let us put ourselves back in Abraham's time. Because in Abraham's time, in that culture, this wasn't like, oh my gosh, how could God ever ask that? In Abraham's time, every God of that region, every God of those peoples, of the Canaanites, this was the go-to thing. That if you wanted to demonstrate your devotion, if you wanted something from your God, Chemosh, Molech, you name it, you had to somehow earn his attention. You had to somehow pave a way for his good things to come to you. Your future actually depended upon whether you would sacrifice your firstborn to that God. This wasn't some monstrous thing. This was, you know, this was basically par for the course. This is what every God asked for. Now, Abraham knows Yahweh. He's walked with Yahweh for no more than 25 years now, plus the, the, the age of Isaac. He knows that Yahweh is not like the other gods. He does not agree with violence against foreigners. Okay, we saw it in the Sodom and Gomorrah story. He looks at injustice and he punishes it okay, at the right time. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. Abraham's experienced forgiveness from God. So Abraham knows that it, God is not like this. And yet, Abraham has also spent a lifetime hearing God's voice. And he knows something is going on. This is God. And so he decides, I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to start this journey. The next morning, early the next morning, Abraham gets up. And he loads his donkey with everything he'll need. Okay? And, he, and he ends up actually taking two servants with him and Isaac, okay? It's a, it ends up being a three-day journey, uh, two-and-a-half-day journey, and, and he cuts enough wood for the burnt offering, and he starts to uh, start out on this journey. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place from a distance, okay? So I just want you to put yourself in the mind frame of Abraham for, for a few moments. Um, he is an older man, but uh, the one thing that is going to, you know, really move him is his son Isaac. The one thing that, that kind of owns the purse strings, that, that, that if you pull on it, it's going to tug his heart, his hope, is, is Isaac. Just imagine this. Any parent, when a child is threatened, it kind of, your, your hackles come up like crazy. So can you just imagine what, what agony um, Abraham must be going through? Okay. Uh, any parent would speak. If you're a parent, you know this, but if you just... Okay, something that you love so, so much, when it's, when it's the, the prospect of having to give it up, it's, it really is tough. I, can get, I can't even begin to think about the agony. I think it's early morning. It's just me. I'm speculating. I think he walks out early morning because he didn't get any sleep the night before. I wouldn't have slept, would you? Right? 
He's wondering, God, was that you? What do I do? Do I just totally disregard God, the one who's been so faithful to me, um, because I made a judgment about God, or do I trust him and take some steps? Every step on this journey must have been excruciating. Okay? It's not like you have to make a, a decision with a gun pointing to your head and you just can't decide. It's like you have time to meditate on it. You have time to think about it. You have time to look for loopholes. That's what I've been doing. But God, what if I do this? What if I do that? The agony at the prospect of not only losing his son, but having to sacrifice his own son, to take the knife and to cut his own son's throat. That's what you do with a sacrifice, by the way. It must have just consumed him. And he, as he gets in, he approaches that place. The, the Bible writers basically say, he looked up and he saw the place from a distance. It's like, you know, it's almost here. Every step is bringing him closer. I want you to realize this because sometimes we don't even imagine that these are real people and what they're experiencing in their life with God is real. But there is also an amazing faith. Right in, inter, inter, you know, spursed with his, 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 his wrestling with this agony. And I think that's what real faith is. It's, it's not this, oh, God's going to take care of it. It's like, I'm feeling it down to my bones, but I also realize God is there. So he says to his, to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And in that language, it's not we're going to sing some songs and listen to a sermon and have some food. It's we're going to sacrifice. And then we'll be back. Isn't that interesting? He's already believing that somehow God's going to work something out and they're going to come back together. Abraham took the wood for the offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Okay? So Isaac's carrying this. He himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two went up together. The donkeys can't get up this high mountain, so he's climbing with his son. And imagine every step, the exhaustion, the effort it must take as he is realizing what's going to happen. And along the way, just imagine, Isaac knows what's going on. He's not just a young little boy. Oh, we're going on a hiking trip with Daddy. He knows. He knows the culture. Okay? In fact, halfway up the mountain, I can just imagine Isaac thinking, I've got to say something. Okay? I've got to find out what's going on because my dad's acting really weird. Uh, father? Yes, my son. Um, the fire's here. The wood is here. Um, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Okay? He's actually kind of saying, I know there's no Thanksgiving turkey dinner without the turkey. Okay? The oven's here. The stuffing's here. Where's the turkey? I know what everybody does. Okay, where's the land? He's basically saying, are you doing what I think you're doing, Dad? You know? Um, and Abraham, in a, in a tortured, at the same time, um, a response is still built on faith because he knows his God, he says. God himself will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That answer was enough for Isaac. Because it wasn't just that he trusted his father. He trusted his father's God. Both of them keep up on the mountain. When they finally got to the place where God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And it says that uh, uh, he actually bound his son. Okay? And then put his son on the altar. Just, just think about it. 
the very act for both father and son as this altar is set up. Everybody knows what's going on. This act of trust on both their parts. Lays his son on the altar. And having heard from God the command of God, he basically, in an, in an act of both agony and faith, he's ready to go through with it. To God's credit, obviously, God actually wasn't playing with Abraham, but he needed to see something. Abraham needed to see something about not only who he was in his relationship with God, but also about who God was. And so at that perfect moment, God stops him. He keeps him from having to sacrifice his own son. And he says, turn around, Abraham. And as he turns around, it's impossible. How is this possible? Right as he turns around, he missed this. He didn't see this. Abraham could not have seen this. Maybe he should have, but he didn't. He turns around. Now he sees a ram caught in the thicket. Okay. By the way, I, I did some searching for rams caught in the thicket, and all I got was, all I got was this really, uh, really cheesy, you know, cartoons. So I found a video where actually this ram got caught on a tree. It was really sad. This poor ram is like trying to get out. A jogger came by, started to take the video, and it freed the ram. But I'm like, man. Rams, they look so tough. You know, they can run into you, but they get caught on trees, you know? Not ev- evolutionarily, not very smart. Um, uh, but yeah, this ram is stuck. And that is that exactly what, what uh, God had provided, a perfect sacrifice at the perfect time so that he, Abraham would not have to give his son. Just imagine not only the agony up to that moment, but the incredible joy that Abraham must have felt to hold his son and to know that God would not have done this to him, but that something was being revealed here. This was a test. At the beginning of the story, we find God is testing Abraham, as he does his sons, his servants. God tested the people of Israel in the desert when they were going through, and he put them through three days with no water to see what was in their hearts but also so they would see that God is able to bring water out of a rock. He tested them with no food, with the prospect of starvation, to see what would happen to them, what would come out of their hearts. But also so they would see that God is able to provide miraculously every day for 40 years manna on the ground. God tested his own son in the wilderness like this. And God provided when we think about this story, just taking a step out for, for a moment, our, a lot of times we get really offended. Why would God test Abraham? I mean, wasn't he good for a whole 25 years? I mean, I don't think I could have been faithful like that for 25 plus. You know, let him enjoy his son for another 20 plus years, whatever, and then ask him to sacrifice? That's cruel. What kind of monster would do that? We actually think of God as the antagonist. And a lot of times in the story... You know, there's a protagonist, the main character who's the hero, usually, and the villain, right? The antagonist who's antagonizing the protagonist. And often when we see the story, we think this is all about Abraham, and it's so easy to see God as the antagonist at times. We do have a reading interpretation scheme that's very skeptical, a hermeneutic of skepticism. But we have to ask ourselves, who is the main character in this story? Sometimes the Bible translators don't do a good job. If you look at the little section heading here in the NIV, it'll say, 
the testing of Abraham. Or otherwise, you'll see like the binding of Isaac. It's all about Abraham and Isaac and, and, and what they went through. And it's true. They went through something. But there's a second layer here, sometimes which is close to the foundation of the story. Right? In fact, if we would look at it, it's not Abraham's story alone. Who is the protagonist? Who is the main character? And the main character in this story is God. The main character in the Bible is God. He starts off in the beginning. In the beginning, there was, you know, there was God created the heavens and the earth. He is the main actor. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the one that's putting everything into motion. And he's the one that actually is orchestrating lives, not out of this sense of bullying and control, but out of love. He is the one that's forecasting and planning. He's the one that already has seen what is necessary and has worked it through. If you read this passage through that lens, it might show you something different than a monster who could ever ask and demand that somebody give up their firstborn. So this is not just a test for Abraham that will reveal Abraham's heart. In many ways, what you're going to see is God is going to show up and reveal himself to be one who is tested and approved. Not just Abraham, but God himself as well. We look at this story and we realize that as we look at kind of the story again, we realize there's language here that is going to be echoed later on in the New Testament where God asks Abraham, okay, to go and bring your son, take your special son, your only son. That word in the book of John especially, describes Jesus. God has lots of sons and daughters, but he has one special son, a son of inheritance, okay? One who's, who he loves and has poured all of himself into. And that's the word is saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, King James Version says, begotten son. NIV says, one and only son. That's that same word here. Take your special only son, your son of inheritance, whom you love, and sacrifice him on that mountain. Isn't it interesting? God knows what Abraham and the agony that Abraham feels because already he has planned, in fact, to sacrifice his own son, whom he loves. And why would he sacrifice his son? I mean, who would ever do something like that? It's because God saw what was happening in humanity. God saw everything that was going wrong. How, and if you follow the story of Genesis, in fact, up to Noah, everything was going wrong. It was getting worse and worse and worse until um, in Noah's time, the thoughts of everybody were turning evil all the time. It's a sign that the, the, the culture has gone completely anarchist, rogue, and you've got monsters. Um, the relationship across the genders got so ugly that men were having harems and there's brutality. Uh, there is not just sexual harassment, but there's, you know, men are owning women for the first time. Everything is breaking down. Culture and civilization is going so ugly. And in the midst of this, what's going to fix this? How do you heal and how do you restore and transform a wicked person's heart, wicked cultures that are leaning constantly toward injustice? How do you begin to do that? Okay. God all saw the need and what it was going to take. It was going to take even the devotion of his own son to the point of death and resurrection. So I want you to just realize that, that you know, the second layer, maybe the, the deeper layer of the story is not Abraham having to agonize over 
offering his own son. Think about it. How long did Abraham lose sleep and walk to get to that place? Back in Genesis 3, God had a plan to restore humanity. How much time passes? Put yourself in the, in the, in the mind frame of God, his special son, whom he loves. Imagine both the agony as well as the, the trust of Jesus, knowing this, planning this, and at the right and the perfect time that actually a sacrifice will be made. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Take your, he will give his only son, Jesus, and go to this region called Moriah. And Moriah is, in, uh, in, the, in the language, it's, re- it's repeated in the Bible you know, uh, later on. There's a thread of Moriah going through. Moriah is described in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 as the very place on which David eventually purchases and Solomon makes the temple. It's the high point in Jerusalem where everybody can see. And in fact, that same area, that region, that same mountain Moriah is where Jesus is to be crucified 2,000 years later. It's, it's amazing to imagine. This is not some, oh, that's great, a prophecy telling about Jesus. God is revealing what he was thinking, what, he, how, what lengths he would have to go to provide for our need. Not just individually our own sense of, oh, I don't, I don't have a, a bad conscience anymore. Not just a little ticket to heaven. How to restore all of broken humanity. How to bring all of this mess, all of this injustice right. Our, every single one of our amazingly costly needs, he actually has already seen the need and is already provided. It's described in such a way where Abraham understands this now. Okay? He says, he calls it this place. He says, I call this place the Lord will provide. Anybody know that language? In fact, if you grew up in church, not everybody did, but if you did, you, a lot of times we sang these kinds of songs called Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, the Lord. Something, something for me, right? Will provide for me. Um, I don't know why, but that song is sticking in my head. Sometimes I'm walking down the street, and I'm singing, I'm like, what am I singing, right? Um, well, it's their language. It's the old language of trying to translate that two-word term. Yahweh, okay, and Jireh here is actually Yireh. It's the word, the Lord will provide. The Lord is a provider, okay? When we think of that term, we think of, oh, yeah, if, I, if I'm short on, you know, and I need some money, God will provide. If I need a friend, God will provide. If I need a spouse, God will provide. If I need a job, if I need a home, God will provide. You know, if I need some comfort because I'm emotionally, I'm, I'm kind of not doing well, God will provide. We think of things as God providing things that we think we need, and that's true. God is amazing at providing. But there's a little depth here if you look at the word yure, because it actually means someone who sees. Okay? How is it that God provides? It's because he's already seen the need. Abraham didn't see the ram in the thicket. Abraham didn't know. He kind of believed, but actually God had already seen. Abraham needed a sacrifice so that his son would not have to be sacrificed. He already knew we would need a sacrifice. He has foreseen. He has forecasted everything that is necessary to fix all of this. And that's what we're thinking about. That's what we're realizing. That the coming of Christ means God, with this perfect vision, knew the perfect time to bring his own son. 
with supernatural binoculars, he's seen ahead. In our lives, in our community life, he's seen ahead. Not just our physical needs, our, our emotional needs, our relational needs, but our spiritual needs. And he's already provided. We have blind spots. We can't even see the car right next to us. But God has already seen. And sometimes in our lack of inability to see, because we weren't built to see everything, we, we lose sight of the one who does. Parents and children have this dynamic that's kind of interesting because children, when they're, when they're born, they can't see very well. They can only see like 12 inches. That's why, you know, they, these child psychologists, they would always say, the reason why you leave the room, the, cr- the child cries. Because they don't know reality. They think you've popped out of existence, right? Just imagine the child's mind. Here's mama with food, right? Oh, that's great. Warmth, love, and I know my mama's voice because I've been in the womb for nine months. Wait a minute, mama's gone. She's never coming back. My food, right? And then mama comes back in and is like, oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, because they can only see this far, right? What's your emotive response? Okay, parents with newborns are all like, yeah, 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 I can't believe my kids are like this, right? Um, well, there's a story of this one guy. He's, uh, he's, he's actually a child psychologist, child, child uh, n- neuro um, uh, development specialist. And, and he had an experience with his own son that when his son was born, he would have these panic attacks when he'd get hungry. And he would like grab what little hair was on his head. And he would yank, you know, pulling out because he's like so freaking out because he doesn't know where the food is coming. And, he, and, and, and so like, you know, John Medina, he would be out in the other room and he's like stressing about all oh, our finances and he's trying to carve out money for his son's future college, you know, needs. He's already expecting his son to go to college even though he, just, he was born and, and he's, he's planning for that. In the midst of this, he sees his son, he hears his son just screaming, you know, and as he's running for the bottle, the son has like got his hands on his hair and he has to pry his hands off and then feed him. And as his son is eating and is really at peace, he's looking at his son like, oh, I know you're only a few months old and you're not really wise in the world yet, but if you just knew what I was doing over in the other room, I was preparing for your college, man. Don't freak out. Food's going to come. We got this worked out for you. And he's kind of like, you know, berating his son. His son doesn't understand, but he's having this conversation in his mind. Like, why are you, why are you freaking out so bad? And he heard this, <coughs> God's voice saying, yeah, really? And he realized through that little lens just, how often his own needs, the needs for how he's going to pay for college, we stress out about. When in fact, who's our father? Who's seen not only our physical, our financial, our relational needs, the needs of ourself, our family, even our whole broken, broken world. It's a place for us, especially this Advent, to realize God's been planning for our lives. God's been planning for our humanity, for this big world. He's got a big plan. He's gone through agony to even send his own son, and he is going to finish it because that's who God is. He's foreseen not only our need, but what is going to fix it. We need to learn how to stay sometimes with God in the midst of this, even though it's confusing and we don't understand. I have a story of when Ellie was a baby, and um, she, I was at work, I was at church, and she was playing with my grandfather, and, you know, they, they had lots of fun, and 
we had baby-proofed everything. I mean, like, the outlets were baby-proofed. All the corners were baby-proofed and so on and so forth. Except there was a windowsill in the, in the playroom that was... We didn't fix that because we didn't expect her to be able to jump and beyond that. But somehow she actually ran, ran right into the windowsill and she cracked her, uh, her eye socket right here. Blood just was starting to gush out. And my wife's squeamish, and she's like on the phone, you got to come home, you know? I mean, what happened? What happened? And, and uh, any eye injury around the eye, it's kind of scary. You know, how do you fix that? They took her to the ER, and I show up at the ER, and she's screaming. She's like freaked out. You know, her only experience of doctors were you go to the doctor's office, and they poke you. <laughs> so she would like, I don't know what it is, but every time she would see a doctor, she would start crying. But this was worse because she's feeling the pain, and the doctor's like, we have to sew this up, or else it's not only is it going to infect, we have to put stitches in. And um, they're like, well, here's your option. We can't put her under general, so we're going we're gonna to inject her with some anesthetic. And um, I worked in the Department of Anesthesiology. I was like, what kind of anesthetic are you going to use? Oh, we're going to use ketamine. I'm like, you ain't putting that stuff in my daughter. That's what we use for horses, right? I was like, well, then you're gonna, she's going to have to be awake with some local. You know, you're going to have to hold her down. I was like, do I threaten her life, you know? Because I'm not putting that stuff in her body. Or do I hold her down? So that's what we did. They, like, put her in a straitjacket. They wrapped her up, but she was squirming so hard. She has to be absolutely still or else the doctor's going to miss, right? So we had two grown men, one surgeon and me, putting out of my body weight on her because she kept squirming. And I'm like, Ellie, it's okay, it's okay. All I know how to do was to sing, God is so good and, and amazing grace, <laughs> And this is her eyes. And she's screaming, and we're holding her. I'm just dying. The agony. But I knew this had to take place. I could see her future without this. It's in those moments you begin to understand not only just how much agony God went through in order to plan for this, but why it was necessary. She didn't understand why it was necessary that these men were crowding over her and her own father had her wrapped up and her body weight pressed down on her. But as a father, I could say, I know what she needed at that moment. Our father says the same. He knows how to meet us. He knows not just our daily needs, our pressing needs, but even the stuff that we did not know he knew that we needed a Savior, that we can't fix ourselves. We could sacrifice our first child, our firstborn, and it would not fix us. And so what did he do? He prevented Abraham from doing this. And so that Israel never had child sacrifice in their history. Instead, he provided his own son. To this day, it says in the book of Genesis, on the mountain of the Lord... It will be provided. That same mountain, Moriah, is, is Golgotha. I want you to imagine both the agony and the joy that led God to plan for this and to fulfill it. This God whose forecast restored Eden didn't just come once. He is coming again. This is who we worship the season of Advent. This is who we get to put our confidence in. This is who we get to partner in. I'm going to add one little story because I didn't include in the first service. Um, 
because he's going to show us this not only for our own needs, but for others as well. So um, if you've ever been on missions, God does this just amazingly. Like you have no money, and out of nowhere, this miraculous comes out of nowhere, sometimes checks in the mail, sometimes and so on and so forth. And, and God uses people who don't understand, like, you know, I have a story of, of my mentor, David Ross, and um, this, this one business person who just started his business in New York. He's a fruit stand. And God told him, I want you to give all of your first month's proceeds, all your profit, send it to this missionary. But I want you to send the missionary, I want you to send it to the airport and leave it in his name, in cash. Can you imagine that? Uh, I wouldn't trust anybody to take a, 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 an envelope in cash, but God told him very specific directions. So he took all of his profit, he calculated down to the cent in cash, he put it in the envelope, dropped it off at the desk of a certain airline and said, I know this sounds really weird, okay, but just please, if you would just humor me, I'm going to leave this for this person, can you just hold it for them? And he, that's what he did, his first month's proceeds. And he just trusted God with it. On the other side, David Ross didn't know, one of his team members didn't have enough money. And God kept on telling him, I'm going to provide, I already know, just show up to the desk. Just show up to the desk. God's like, in a, and David Ross like, I can't just do that. That's irresponsible. Okay, he said, no, don't get a loan. Just show up to the desk. So out of faith, David Ross kind of goes, um, did anybody leave anything for me? I know it's kind of weird, but my name is David Ross. Did anybody leave anything? He's like, how strange. There is an envelope somebody left for you. And as he opened the door, the exact amount they needed was the exact amount in the envelope. There are stories like this everywhere. Everybody involved, both the one who's, who trusted God to sacrifice it and the one who trusted God to receive it, what did they learn? What did they see? That God has already seen. And he's going to do this. He's going to prompt some to, to, to trust that God's going to provide. He's going to prompt some to actually, to offer. all the way around, God has seen the need and God has provided. That's what we celebrate this Advent. A God who's planned, God who's seen, God has provided. This is the last verse. What then shall we say, this book of Romans, in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, Jesus, how will he not also graciously give us all things? I want you to bow your heads and begin to pray.